Uh, today and tomorrow we're going to continue primarily with this story that we've been exploring over the last few days of the Buddha's life. Let me begin with a quotation from, from Milan Kundera. This is from his uh, new book, uh, Le Rideau, The Curtain. A magic curtain, woven of legends, was suspended in front of the world. Cervantes sent Don Quixote on a journey and ripped the curtain. The world opened itself up before the wandering night in all the comic nudity of his prose. And I think in many ways, when we... Um, begin to explore this story that is opening up for us, we are being asked likewise to somehow cast aside the magic curtain of legend, of myth, of what Kundera also calls pre-interpretation that hangs before us the received knowledge of, in this case, Buddhist tradition, of what we may have heard or read or been told about who the Buddha was, even also, of course, what his teachings were about, that all of these things come to us preloaded with centuries of interpretation. So the exercise that we're embarking on here is somehow to try to rend that magic curtain woven of legends and see things in the comic nakedness of the kind of prose that we would find in fiction. We left our story with the marriage of Vasabhakatya, Lady Vasabha, and it's ironic that the texts call her Lady Vasabha, when all along everybody knows she's the daughter of a slave, to King Pasenadi, the great king, leader, tyrant, all-round complicated and problematic person who holds sway over Kosala and to that extent is the person who secures and allows, makes possible the Buddha's stay in Savati, in the Jetta's Grove, where, as we looked yesterday, he spent the longest single period of his life, 18 consecutive monsoons, from the age of 57 to 75. And it's during this period, I feel, that he had the Uh, the facilities, the resources, the peace, the security in order to consolidate and work out his vision of what a person was and could be and likewise what a society could be for such a person. And a figure who comes to play an important role during this period is his cousin Ananda, also known as Ananda. (laughs) 
Ananda, as I will insist on calling him, (laughs) became the Buddha's attendant for the last uh, 20 years of his life. And so from the age of 60, shortly after the Jetta Grove period began until his death. And it's curious how Ananda came into this position. It seems that many monks had been given this post, the Buddha's attendant, and it had never really worked out terribly well. They'd either neglected their duties or they'd forgotten something he asked them to do or they'd gone off somewhere else. There were problems. And eventually Ananda is invited to hold this position, but he does so under quite strict conditions. He says, I'm not to benefit from any special dwellings that might be made available to the Buddha, nor to any special food. And um, on the other hand, I must have the assurance that everything that the Buddha says, while I'm not present, that he repeats that to me. Ananda was the man of the prodigious memory, the memory bank of the community, perhaps. He also insists that anybody who comes from afar, he has the right to bring into the Buddha's presence. So he lays down quite, it's about eight criteria for this job. He also seems to be a man who had a profound sympathetic identity with the Buddha. It says that when the Buddha fell ill, Ananda fell sympathetically ill as well. He obviously was a deeply devoted man, I suspect perhaps quite an emotional man. And it's also striking that Ananda, um, despite all of his years of proximity to the Buddha, never becomes anything more than a stream entrant. And in some ways perhaps one might feel that he, he gives up, he sacrifices his complete enlightenment for the task at hand for his duties in the world. As we saw, he also is the one who speaks up on behalf of the dispossessed, specifically uh, the women. It's he who persuades the Buddha to include them in the community. So we now fast forward to the Buddha at the age of 72. Clearly, he's now advanced in years. He will have done a great deal of his work. He will have established his community, would have worked out the details of his teaching. And we find him at the age of 72, not in Shravasti, Savati, but back in Rajgaha, in Rajgir. And one imagines this is during a walking tour that he must have undertaken that year, because we know that that rainy season he'll be back in Shravasti. And it's at this point that dissension begins to break out in the order. And the agent of this is his cousin Devadatta. Remember, Ananda and Anuruddha and Mahanama are cousins on his father's side, they're Gautamas, but Devadatta is a cousin on his mother's side, the son of Supabuddha and Suddhodana's sister Amita. In other words, 
the brother also of the Buddha's mother. Now, Devadatta is not mentioned much in the texts, um, and one has the impression that he was perhaps all along somewhat estranged from the, uh, the main group of disciples. I have the feeling that he perhaps was the one who was their man in Rajgir, as it were. And again, I think there's some circumstantial evidence for this. So the Buddha is there, um, and it says in the... And I'm reading here from the Vinaya, from the Kulavaga and the Vinaya. The Buddha was seated, preaching the Dharma, surrounded by a great multitude, including the king, Bimbisara, and his retinue. And then Devadatta stood up and said, The Blessed One... Lord, is now grown aged. He is old and stricken in years. He has accomplished a long journey, and his term of life is nearly run. Let the Buddha now dwell at ease in the enjoyment of happiness reached even in this world. Let the Buddha give up the community of monks to me, and I will be its leader. And the Buddha says, You have said enough, Devadatta. Do not desire to be the leader of the community of monks. And so Devadatta asks a second time and, a third, and a third time, which is the, the convention of that period. And then the, the Buddha says, I would not give over the, the, the community of monks, Devadatta, even to Sariputta or Moggallana, let alone a gob of spit like you. <laughs> Now, one feels in such a, a rather um, unfamiliar kind of language <laughs> that, there's a, that there's a history behind this. <laughs> it certainly taps into the long story of the conflict between the two sides of his family in Shakya. Perhaps this was an ongoing tension within the community of monks itself. Now, Devadatta says, before the king and his retinue, the Buddha denies me, calling me a gob of spit, and exalts Sariputta and Moggallana. Angry and displeased, he bowed down before the Buddha and departed thence. And then the Buddha says to the monks, let the community O monks, carry out against Devadatta the act of proclamation. In other words, I'm going to denounce this man. And so Shariputta um, is appointed to go into Rajgaha and make a public proclamation denouncing Devadatta. So Sariputta, and I'm reading the text, entered Rajgaha with a number of monks and proclaimed Devadatta accordingly. And thereupon those people who were unbelievers without devotion or insight said this, they are jealous, these Sakyaputta Samanas, these wanderers from Shakya. They are jealous of the gain and hospitality that fall to Devadatta. But others who were devotees gifted with insight, said, this cannot be any ordinary affair, in that the Buddha 
has had Devadatta denounced throughout Rajgir. This is a very strong uh, step to take. And in, all, in other words, to make public um, the Buddha's uh, concern and perhaps um, uh, anger at this man. What would be the reasons for that? We go back again to the period beneath the Bodhi tree and before the Brahma Sahampati appears and encourages the Buddha to go and teach to those with little dust on their eyes, there's another episode which is not actually, not actually found in the Pali. It's found in an early Sanskrit text where two merchants come and feed the Buddha some rather rich food and he falls ill and is close perhaps to dying and Mara appears, the devil, and says to the Buddha, now is the time to enter Nirvana, to die. And the Buddha says, I will not enter Nirvana until my teachings are well established in this world, until my community is strong, until there are monks and nuns who are able to teach the Dhamma as I have taught them. And this is very much a statement of commitment, a statement of mission. And this is the first time in, with this episode with Devadatta that this mission is under threat. And I feel that that's probably the reason that the Buddha is very concerned not to allow this um, split in the Sangha to take place. Now what follows is, again, very tragic. Devadatta then goes to Ajatasattu. Ajatasattu is the prince, the crown prince, the uh, eldest son of King Bimbisara and his wife Devi. Now, Kosala, whose king is Pasenadi, was allied through marriage to Magadha through Devi. Devi, Bimbisara's wife, was Pasenadi's sister. It's all mixed up. <laughs> and Ajatasattu, therefore, is the nephew of King Pasenadi of Kosala. But Ajatasattu, by this time, seems to be um, a rather a frustrated prince. He must have come of age by now and seems to desire to rule. So Devadatta went, went to the prince immediately after this snub by the Buddha and he says, in former days, prince, people were long-lived but now their term of life is short. It's quite possible, therefore, that you may complete your time while you are still a prince. So do you, prince, kill your father and become Raja, or king, and I will kill the Buddha and become the Buddha? Now, again, how did anyone know this? There's a problem with this story in that it's recounting events that certainly Ananda or any of the other monks would have been privy to. And so I take it with somewhat of a pinch of salt. It then describes how Ajatasattu goes into the palace with a concealed dagger. He's apprehended by the guards, disarmed, taken to the king, Bimbisara, and the king says, why do you want to kill me, my son? And he says, because I want to rule the kingdom. And then Bimbisara says, if you want to rule the kingdom, the kingdom is yours. 
I find that a little hard to believe. <laughs> but the point, surely, and this is borne out by subsequent facts, is that, de- uh, is that Ajatasattu does manage by one means or another, perhaps through usurping the throne, through perhaps by putting pressure on his father, to become king. And the next thing that happens is that um, Ajatasattu and Devadatta then prepare to somehow um, attack the Buddha. And there is a number of episodes that describe assassination attempts. The most credible one, I think, is when the king, or the, the prince, Ajatasattu, um, dispatches some soldiers to shoot the Buddha with an arrow. But the soldiers, as they come close to the Buddha, find themselves incapable of doing this, of carrying out this order, and they return. There are other episodes that recount Devadatta pushing a boulder off Vulture's Peak and a splinter of the rock which breaks off, smashes into the Buddha's ankle. And there's another occasion when he sets a mad elephant loose in the city that goes straight for the Buddha. And again, all of this sounds a little bit out of uh, a cartoon strip rather than anything that might have happened. After all, boulders pushed by old monks and mad elephants set loose in the streets are not exactly cruise missiles. But I think it's perhaps quite likely that um, the Buddha did have an accident at this period. I wonder if the, 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 the injured ankle may well have come from a rock that fell down the hill. This sort of thing does happen. But in any case, um, the next episode recounts what happens um, probably a few days or a few weeks later when once again the Buddha is giving a talk and Uh, Devadatta stands up at the end of the discourse and says the following. He says, look, you've declared in many ways the advantages of the person who wishes for little, who's easy to satisfy in food and nourishment, and who's quelled his passions and strives with zeal. Would it not be good, therefore, if the monks, their whole lives long, were dwellers in the woods... And any monk who went into a village or a town would be committing an offence. And likewise, they should only beg for their alms. And any monk who accepts an invitation into a layperson's house would likewise commit an offence. And they should only clothe themselves in cast-off rags. Any monk who takes on um, cloth given by the laity would be committing an offence. They should only live under trees. Any monk who lives under a roof would be committing an offence. And they should also, their lives long, abstain from eating meat and fish. And any monk who doesn't do that would be committing an offence. And the Buddha says, no, Devadatta, whoever wants to, let him dwell in the woods. Whoever wants to, let him dwell in a town or a village Whoever wants to, let him beg for alms. But if others want to accept invitations from the laity, let them do that. Likewise with clothes. Likewise, Devadatta sleeping under a tree. If the monks wish to do that, that's fine, but not during the monsoon. And if 
the monk knows that the fish or meat has not been expressly killed for him, then he's perfectly allowed to eat meat and fish. Now what is, I think, telling here is that what Devadatta is trying to do is to, is, is, is to tighten things up. He wants the Buddhist order not to have the kind of social mobility that we talked about yesterday, but rather to become a much more ascetic, renunciant order, perhaps rather more along the lines of the Jains. And remember, the Jains were particularly strong in Rajgir. If you go to Rajgir today, in fact, you'll find that it's primarily a Jain pilgrimage place. So Devadatta's idea, and again, one suspects he had support on this, was to uh, pull the monks out of their interactions with society, to make them into a rather more austere and um, ascetic movement. So the Buddha rejects this, and Devadatta, pleased and delighted that the Buddha had refused his five demands, departed thence with his friends. And he goes into the city of Rajgir and he says, well, I asked him to accept these rules that you know, we wish to follow, but he refused. But nonetheless, I and my followers will abide by them. And this is the point at which the community begins to split. So Devadatta and his followers then uh, tell Ananda that they are going to now follow the observances independently of the rest of the community. And that is, in fact, what then happens. Devadatta uh, then leaves Rajgir and he goes back to Gaya Sisa. Uh, Gaya Sisa, if you look on your map, is near the town of Gaya, near Uruvela, And that's where the Buddha had preached the fire sermon, actually. So you now have two communities, the the, the main one around the Buddha and now this faction under Devadatta. Nonetheless, um, the Buddha then dispatches Sariputta and Moggallana to go to Gayasisa to try to persuade the monks with Devadatta to come back into the fold, and they succeed. And so um, one night when Devadatta's been up teaching late, he says to Sariputta, why don't you, friend Sariputta, give the monks a talk? And then Devadatta lies down to have a nap. And of course, Sariputta then preaches the Dhamma, and all of the monks realize that what the Buddha has to say is actually um, what they want to hear. And so they all disappear overnight with Sariputta. Devadatta wakes up the mor- in the morning and says, where are the monks gone? <laughs> and he's so angry, it says, that he coughs blood. <laughs> now what happens to Devadatta, the texts are unclear. Some say that the ground opened up and he fell down <laughs> into hell. Others say, which sounds more, more plausible, that he was then left very isolated. But later in his life, when he felt he was close to death, he sought to reconcile himself with the Buddha, but was unable to complete the journey to Sravasti or wherever the Buddha was, uh, and he died. 
But it's also, um, it seems, a point at which the Buddha's authority is now, at least potentially, going to be undermined. So the Buddha returns from Rajgir to Sarvati for the rains. And it would probably have been either that year or maybe the following year, it's difficult to get an exact chronology here, that he would have learnt of the fate of King Bimbisara. So Ajatasattu, the prince, seizes the throne or arranges somehow for things to work out that he becomes king. But he also, just to make sure, keeps his father under house arrest and effectively imprisons him. And again, it's said that he does this through the advice of Devadatta. Devadatta says, if you let the king just carry on um, and be around, then um, you know, he's going to cause you trouble. So you better imprison him. And then once he's imprisoned, Devadatta says, you know, it's like a rat inside a drum. Sooner or later, he'll eat his way out. So Ajatasattu then decides that he will starve his father to death and proceeds to um, uh, 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 prevent any food getting in to the house or the prison. His wife, the queen, Ajatasattu's mother, Devi, tries to smuggle food in, and she initially does so by hiding food in her headdress. But that is discovered, and the guards then search her on coming in, so she can't bring food in that way. So what she does is she, 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 she coats her body with syrups, and the king then licks the syrups from her body in order to get nourishment. But the guards find out about that too. So no more syrups. (laughs) And in the end, the only way that Bimbisara seems to be able to keep himself alive is just by slowly walking up and down in his cell to to, to maintain consciousness. And then one day some barbers appear And the king thinks that they've come to shave his beard and cut his hair. He thinks this is quite a good idea. But instead, they lie him down and they cut his feet, the soles of his feet, with their razors so that he can't walk. And, yeah, ooh. And that's the end of Bimbisara. He then dies. And his wife, Devi, um, hears of this and she too dies of grief. So Ajatasattu has effectively murdered his parents. Just as a side note, in the Pure Land tradition of Buddhism, the Jodo Shin in in Japanese, um, the Buddha delivers the teaching on the Pure Land of Amitabha to Queen Devi as consolation for her grief before she dies. But of course there's no mention of that in the Pali text. Now when this news reaches uh, the Buddha, um, it also of course has reached Savati, and when King Pasenadi learns of the fate of his sister and his brother-in-law, he resolves to attack Magadha 
to send an invading army down to Kasi. Now, if you look at your map, this means that he will send his troops down from Sarvati to this area called Kasi, which is near Benares. And the ostensible reason for this is to reclaim the land that he had given his sister as dowry to her in her marriage to Bimbisara. But clearly it's an attempt to revenge this um, death that's been caused by Ajatasattu. Persenadi attacks. Again, the texts are a little bit um, ambiguous about this. They say there are two, there are two battles, one of which Persenadi wins, one of which he loses, but it doesn't really tell us in which order these things occurred. I personally think it's likely that um, given the distance involved, um, it's probable that he, in fact, ended up defeated by the more superior powers of Magadha. And as part of the peace treaty, he is forced to give his daughter, Vajira, by Malika, his first wife, whom we heard of before, as a bride to his erstwhile enemy, Ajatasattu. So in other words, Persenadi now marries his daughter to his nephew and becomes thereby the father-in-law as well as the uncle of Ajatasattu. Now it must be around this time, uh, very close, within a year or so of this event, that the young prince Vidudaba the son of Persenadi and his bride Vasaba, the Shakyan slave girl, um, decides to make a journey to Shakya to see the Shakyan side of his family. He will probably be at, at least 16, 17 years old, maybe a bit more, the texts don't specify, but he's clearly now a young man. So he returns to Shakya, well, doesn't return to Shakya, he goes to Shakya, there's no record of his having been there before, and he goes to the assembly hall at Shakya, this would be a natural place for a dignitary to be received, especially the man who will become the king of Kursala. One then imagines that his grandfather, Mahanama, the Buddha's cousin, would have taken care of him, probably showed him around, and before he leaves, um, he goes back again to the assembly hall in Kapilavastu. But this time he notices that none of the Shakyan noble women will sit on the seat that he had occupied on his first visit. And he makes inquiries, and it's then that he discovers the deception. He discovers that he is, in fact, the son of a slave. And the reason that the noble women will not sit where he has sat is because they feel that he has defiled that seat. Understandably, he feels humiliated and angry. And he then vows to wash the seats of the Shakyan assembly with the blood of the Shakyan women. And then he goes back 
to Kosala, to Shravasti, and tells his father. Now, Persenides' reaction initially is to further humiliate his son and his wife, the queen, and he dresses them both in the sackcloth of slaves and has them paraded around the city for their humiliation. He blames them for some reason. The Buddha apparently um, dissuades him of the wisdom of such a move, and they are restored to their positions. But it seems quite clear that at this point, the Buddha's position in Savati is no longer really tenable. Likewise, any of the Shakyans in Jetta's Grove would have now been exposed as, at the very least, being complicit and being silent in this deception of the king. And we now get a quite, we can now work out quite clearly the sequence of years that follows. There is no mention of the Buddha staying in Savati after his 75th year. And I would um, imagine that that would have been the point when the deception was exposed. So at the age of 75, the Buddha now leaves Sravasti for the last time and is effectively now sent into exile. So where does he go? Well, he doesn't really have much choice. And he returns to Rajgaha, to Rajgir, which again we know is been the site of two or three years earlier of this attempt by Devadatta to overthrow the community. Ajatasattu does not seem to be a terribly promising sponsor. And yet we find him back in Rajgir. And this episode um, is reported in the Samanya Pala Sutta, which is the second discourse in the Diganikaya, the long discourses of the Buddha. And it starts to tell the story. Um, it says, Thus I have heard, once the Lord was staying at Rajgaha in Jivaka's mango grove together with a large company of monks. Now Jivaka is again an interesting figure. He's, he's the court physician. He's the doctor of the king of Bimbisara and later Ajatasattu. At that time, King Ajatasattu of Magadha, having gone up to the roof of his palace, was sitting there surrounded by his ministers on the, 15th, uh, on, on the full moon day of the fourth month. And, the, and King Ajatasattu said, Delightful, friends, is this moonlit night. Charming is this moonlit night. Can we not today visit some ascetic or Brahmin, a person we could visit who could bring peace to our hearts. So again, you have a sense of a man who's troubled. And we can understand why. (laughs) And the ministers suggest all sorts of teachers to whom he could go and uh, spend some time, uh, including Mahavira, uh, the leader of the Jains. But then the doctor, Jivaka, says to him, Sir, there is this uh, Arhant, the fully enlightened Buddha, staying in my mango grove. Maybe 
you should go and see him. And Jatasattu agrees. And so it says that having placed his wives on, um, it says 500 she-elephants, it just means a lot of elephants, he mounted the royal tusker and proceeded in state, accompanied by torchbearers. Remember, this is a, a moonlit night, so we can imagine them leaving the palace and going off to Jivaka's mango grove. And when King Ajatasattu came near the mango grove, he felt fear and terror, and his hair stood on end. And feeling this fear, he said to his doctor, Jivaka, Friend Jivaka, you're not deceiving me, are you? You're not tricking me. You're not delivering me up to an enemy. How is it that from this great number of monks, not a sneeze, a cough, or a shout is to be heard? And Jivaka says, no, don't worry. There's nothing to be afraid of. So King Ajatasattu takes his elephant as far as he can into those grounds and continues on foot to the door of the round pavilion. And then he asks, well, where is the Buddha? And Jivaka says, there he is. He's sitting against the middle column with his monks in front of him. And the first thing King Ajatasattu says when he goes to the Buddha, he says, if only my young prince Ubayabada were possessed of such calm as your order of monks. And again, this is, would be the son of uh, he, the king and his wife uh, Vajira, the daughter of Pasenadi. And then the, Buddha, then the, the uh, king asks the Buddha if he can point to the results of leading the, uh, uh, the homeless life. And this leads to a long, long, long disquisition. It goes on for pages and pages and pages, in which the Buddha effectively offers a critique of all the other teachers of his time and then delivers his understanding of what the path and its fruits are. And at the end, the very, and you have to go right to the end of the sutta, Ajatasattu says, excellent, Lord, that's excellent. It's if someone were to set up what has been knocked down or to point out the way to one who got lost or to bring a lamp into a dark place so those with eyes could see what was there. And so have you expounded the Dhamma in various ways. And I, Lord, go for refuge to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, and to the Sangha. May you accept me from this day forth as a lay follower as long as I live. And then he says, Transgression overcame me, foolish, erring and wicked as I was, in that for the sake of the throne I deprived my father, that good and just king of his life. May the Lord accept my confession of this evil deed and that that I may restrain myself in future. And the Buddha says, yes, I accept your confession. And since you have acknowledged it and confessed it as is right, indeed, we will all accept it. For he who acknowledges his transgression as such and confesses it for the betterment in future will grow in the noble discipline. And then the king said, please permit me to depart now. I'm very busy. I've got much to do. And the Buddha says, okay, off you go. 
And then it says, King Ajatasattu, rejoicing and delighting at these words, rose from his seat, saluted the Buddha, and departed. But as soon as the king had gone, continues the text, the Buddha said, the king is done for. His fate is sealed, monks. If the king had not deprived his father, that good man and just king, of his life, then as he sat here, the pure and spotless Dhamma eye would have arisen within him. Now here we have really a mixed message. He's saying to the king, because you have confessed, you will grow in the noble discipline, the Aryan discipline, the Aryan path. As soon as the king is gone, he turns to his monks and says, no way. Because he killed his father, then uh, the spotless Dhamma eye, which is the stream entry, the entering into the Aryan path, um, did not arise. Now, I suspect that, as in other situations with Pasenadi, the Buddha doesn't really have a choice. If he is to find a new base in which to establish his community, he needs the protection and the support of this king. He cannot afford to alienate him or to upset him. And so this rather curious mixed message. The Buddha then returns to Shakya. And this must have been within a year or so of this event. Why would he have gone back to Shakya? I think the most likely explanation is that he would have heard of the impending invasion of Shakya by the army of Kursala. He goes back to see if he can somehow prevent the invasion by Pasenadi and his general Digakarayana and his son Prince Vidudava as reprisal for the humiliation of the royal family. So now we have to jump to another part in, of the canon. This is the 89th middle-length discourse called the Dhammachetya Sutta, uh, translated as Monuments to the Dhamma. And here we get the next sequence of events. Thus I have heard, on one occasion the Buddha was living in the Shakyan country at a town of the Shakyans called Medalumpa. Now on that occasion, King Pasenadi of Kursala had arrived at Nagaraka. Then he addressed Digakarayana, Dear Karayana, have the state carriages prepared. Let's go to a pleasure garden to see a pleasing spot. Now we have to remember, the Buddha is now 80 years old. This becomes clear from the end of this text. Pasenadi's about the same age, and he's in the company of the general of his army, Diga Karayana. Remember that Diga Karayana was the nephew of Bandula, the former army chief, Pasenadi's friend, whom he had murdered because of the potential, because of the rumor of Bandula's ambitions to mount a coup. Now we have to ask ourselves, what on earth is Pasenadi 
and Diga Karayan are doing in Shakya at this time? Why would they have left the capital and come to this place? It seems there's only really one explanation, and that is they are planning some kind of military reprisal against the Shakyans. So the text rambles on a bit until the king decides that, well, actually the Buddha's nearby, why don't we go visit him? So he asks a monk, or maybe he sees a monk and learns this. That's more or less what the text seems to say. And so he asks the monk, where is the Buddha staying? And the monk says, that is his dwelling over there, great king, with the closed door. Go up to it quietly, without hurrying. Enter the porch, clear your throat, and tap on the panel. The Buddha will open the door for you. So King Persenadi handed over his sword and turban to Digga Karayana. Then Digga Karayana thought, so the king is going into secret session, and I have to wait here alone. Without hurrying, King Persenadi went quietly up to the dwelling with the closed door, entered the porch, cleared his throat, and tapped on the panel. The Buddha opened the door. Now, that passage, which, if you read it out of context, would be completely meaningless, is, I think, one of the key um, uh, moments in understanding the complexity of this story. King Persenadi handed over his sword and turban to Digga Karayana. The sword and the turban, as well as six other objects were considered in ancient India to be the official insignia of kingship. A bit like the crown and the scepter in a European monarchy. So he hands over his royal insignia. He presumably probably changes into the simple white garb of a lay follower. But the general thinks he's going into secret session now and I have to wait here alone. So the king enters into the Buddha's hut. We imagine it as such. And he, he bows down, covers the Buddha's feet with kisses and caresses them with his hands, announcing, I am King Persenadi of Kosala, Venerable Sir. I am King Persenadi of Kosala. But great king, says the Buddha, what reason do you see for doing such supreme honor to me and for showing such friendship. And then the king gives a number of reasons, uh, basically saying that um, everywhere he looks, he finds that his, his, his people, um, his employees, um, the monks that he meets, all of them pay far more honor to the Buddha than they do to him, their king. And you have the sense here of a man who also is perhaps realizing that his life is coming to an end and that things may not be working out as he might initially have wished. And you feel that this is the meeting of two elderly men who in a way are losing their authority. And then as the final reason for why he pays homage to the Buddha, he says, because the Buddha is a noble and I am a noble. The Buddha is a Kosalan, and I am a Kosalan. 
the Buddha is 80 years old and I am 80 years old. Since that is so, I think it proper to, to offer such honor to you. And the Buddha says, no, sorry, then the king says, but we're both, but now, venerable sir, we depart. We are busy and have much to do. And so the king leaves. Now, when the king goes out of the hut, he finds that the general has disappeared. That instead of a military man holding on to the royal insignia, there is just a horse and an old servant woman. And the servant woman tells the king what's happened. The Digakarayana, the general, when he saw the king go into secret session, thought that a plot was going to be hatched between the king and the Buddha. And so he decided then and there to usurp the throne by giving the royal insignia to Vidudaba, the prince. So we imagine the general getting on his horse and going to where the armies are amassed to take over the kingdom of Kosala. Pasenadi, therefore, is abandoned. And he's just given one route out, namely the horse with the servant woman. And where does he go? He goes to Rajgir. He goes to the only place now that he might get any sort of help and that is from his nephew and his son-in-law, Ajatasattu. And so off he goes. He goes south, and we can see on the map the long journey of about 300 miles that he now undertakes, this old, defeated king. So what does the Buddha do next? According to the commentaries, Again, this is not recorded in the suttas themselves. He and Ananda then go to the border between Shakya and Kosala. And as the Kosalan armies approach with the prince and the general at their head, the Buddha seeks once again to intervene in this dispute, although now it's a much more serious conflict, not between the two branches of his family over water rights, but literally the survival of Shakya itself. And the texts say that on three occasions the Buddha seeks to dissuade the prince and the general from launching an attack, and three times he's rebuffed. They refuse to listen to him. And the Buddha realizes that there's no more that he can possibly do. So he too, with Ananda, heads south. They too flee Shakya, I suspect at the prompting of the other monks and the lay followers, and head back towards Vishali and Rajgir. And then the next thing that happens is, in a way inevitable now, the armies of Koshala invade Shakya. And as would be the case nowadays, albeit with rather more primitive weaponry, they engage in what we can call ethnic cleansing, genocide, holocaust, and Shakya is destroyed. The, the towns and the villages are burnt to the ground, the men are killed, the women presumably are raped, 
the children are stabbed and knived. Not a single Shakyan noble is allowed to remain alive, with the one exception. Vidudava says, do not take the life of my grandfather, Mahanama, the Buddha's cousin. Spare him. Everybody else is to be killed. So this Shakyan pride is finally brought low to destruction. And so that's where we leave the story today. With Pasenadi, followed by the Buddha and Ananda, fleeing this battle zone to the south, to the safety of Vishali, to Rajgira, hopefully for some kind of support. Tomorrow we will continue the story to the end. Just um, a more practical point. Um, We're coming to the end of this retreat now. And as is often the case, we might begin to be thinking a lot about what we're going to be doing when we get home or how we, how we get home. Try to be aware of the mind's tendency to project into the future. And when you see that, come back to what we're doing here. The sitting and the walking and the silence and the awareness. And likewise, renew your commitment to the practice for the next two days that we have left here. And again, I think the sitting and the walking and the silence is not um, in any way um, something different from what we're hearing and what Martine and Shada are telling us in the evenings. But really we can think of those activities as allowing a kind of uh, receptacle within our body and minds in which these materials can be allowed to settle and perhaps digest. Try not to get too caught up in thinking about them. If If a question comes up, jot it down and either put it on the board or prepare it for the discussion this afternoon. But don't try to get too sort of caught up in it. But allow yourself in a way to hear the story. What I'm trying to do is I'm not trying to tell you what this all means, but I'm trying to show you what happened, at least according to the earliest textual tradition we have. So this is showing rather than telling. And again, I think we need to listen to that, to respond to that in the same way as we might respond to a piece of theatre or a film or a novel, to allow ourselves to, to be witness to that story, its tragedies, its implications, and allow the meaning to settle rather than let the mind try to clutch at this point or that point or the other. Uh, This afternoon in the discussion, I'm going to um, attend to uh, the backlog of of written questions initially um, rather than open it up straight away to discussion. So those of you who are waiting for my answers to those points, um, hopefully they will be covered 
this afternoon. This talk was given by Stephen Batchelor at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 27, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.